0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, that's a, the topic for the next two weeks following when I'm away. is a nice follow-on since uh, this evening my um, topic is wisdom. Uh, I've been talking... Is it on? Uh, is the recording on? Oh, good. Okay. Um, the last few times I've been here, I've been talking about a list of qualities um, called the Ten Perfections. We could call them the Ten Supreme Qualities. I, I, the Perfections is such a funny word. I looked up to see, is there another way it's translated? And, and it, uh, the word Parami, this list that is called the Paramis in Pali, is also um, used to mean supreme. Parami means supreme, and so these are these are qualities that um, are beautiful qualities that both are uh, that we encourage in our practice, and that we um, that are cultivated as we explore our experience from the perspective of mindfulness and wisdom. So these ten qualities, just to name them now, are generosity, ethics. Renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, or determination, and loving-kindness, and equanimity. So they're a set of beautiful qualities, and we can think of them in a way, they are understood in the, in, in, um, at least in Burma and in Thailand, as I understand it, they're understood as those qualities that we spend time cultivating in our daily lives. They're really a daily life practice, these qualities. So exploring how to meet what's happening in our lives and in the world through cultivating these qualities. How can we explore these qualities in our, in our lives and in meeting the world? really we can think of them almost as skillful means for navigating the world in a way that brings um, less suffering to the world. So one of the um, ways that these paramis are described as perfections is that they both support each other and they are said to um, help to perfect each other. And so, for instance, it's, it's understood that uh, the first quality of generosity can support ethics arising. So, so generosity, as we explore being generous to our fellow human beings, being connected to our fellow human beings with a heart of, of, of kindness and connection that it becomes more natural for us to want to behave in a way that's non-harming. And so in this way, generosity supports ethics arising and ethics flowering. And ethics is understood in a way to perfect generosity. Because um, with with the arising of uh, a non-harming attitude we begin offering to our communities, our fellow human beings, a beautiful gift of non-harming, a gift of fearlessness that people do not need to be afraid in our presence. And this is said to be a very beautiful gift that we offer. And so the gift of generosity is perfected by connecting to the, uh, the ethics and the exploration of non-harming. And then... Non-harming is connected to the next quality of renunciation. And the last time I talked a lot about renunciation. Um, You know, renunciation is often a challenge. That word can be a challenge for us because we feel like it means giving up something that we like or something that we want uh, or something that we need even. Um, and so, you know, the the, uh, the exploration of how sila supports renunciation, or how ethics—the word sila it means ethics in Pali—how ethics supports renunciation. Uh, ethics uh, begins to help us to understand what it means to behave in a non-harming way with our fellow human beings. And renunciation begins to um, help us to understand how to behave in a non-harming way to ourselves. What we renounce when we uh, explore renunciation is we renounce ways that we engage in inner harm, The, the aspects of greed, aversion, and delusion in our minds, um, is what we are asked to renounce. This is a. It, it can be a challenge because we do. Uh, we want to move towards things that are pleasant and move away from things that are unpleasant. And yet, the pattern of that, the pattern of not uh, of acting on greed, of acting on aversion, of acting on delusion, kind of reinforces a cycle that creates an inner harm. And so, renunciation is about exploring that piece of non-harming that piece of not harming ourselves. And then the quality that I'd like to explore tonight, wisdom is said to perfect renunciation because partly the, um, the understanding that greed, aversion, and delusion are those factors, those forces in our mind that lead to suffering. That is wisdom. It is wisdom to recognize that acting out on greed, acting out on aversion, acting out on delusion is not helpful. And so as wisdom grows, we begin to understand with more clarity just how helpful it is to let go of actions that are motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion. To let go as best we can to explore what does it mean to meet those qualities not with repression, but also not with acting out. And so with wisdom, we come to understand this uh, meaning of, a different meaning of renunciation that I read this quote last time. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, desire falls away by itself without the need for struggle. And so this is what wisdom does for us. It helps us to change our perspective on the world, change our perspective on desire, change our perspective on greed, aversion, and delusion. And we begin, it begins, wisdom begins to turn us in the direction of both non-harm outwardly and non-harm inwardly in a much more natural way. So the wisdom of the Buddha I'm not I'm, I'm going to just I'm not going to go through all the rest of them in this fashion. I'm going to touch on the way they meet each other as we go through the series. The wisdom of the Buddha is related And we can think of having wisdom around many things, like wisdom around uh, our work or wisdom around how we engage in uh, relationships or, you know, just different kinds of wisdom that are out there. Uh, Wisdom, and we might even think there's wisdom about how to drive a car, you know, more knowledge than wisdom perhaps, but some wisdom in terms of, you know, being, uh, taking care on the roads. So, you know, there's wisdom about many different things. But the wisdom that the Buddha is pointing to, the wisdom of our practice, is wisdom that connects to this question of suffering. The Buddha, his whole exploration was oriented around this question of suffering. How and why do beings suffer? And is it possible to be free from that suffering? And so the uh, Buddha did have a, an awakening experience where this wisdom, the wisdom of how and why suffering is created was understood by him. And this is the wisdom that he spent 50 years teaching. 45 years teaching so he spent time 45 years articulating what he understood this wisdom that he understood often in um, in our exploration of wisdom in this room and on retreats we look at uh this question of suffering, in terms of how it's created in our being, the uh, and in, it's it's a it's a very profound exploration to look at. As I just mentioned, greed, aversion, and delusion being kind of the root causes of why we suffer. Now, this this creates or has us understanding a kind of a a narrower definition of suffering in a way. It's not that suffering is just simply painful experience but more that suffering is around how we respond to painful experience. The first noble truth that the Buddha offered is there is suffering. The truth of suffering. There will be painful experience. There will be Difficulties that happen. And um, a certain amount of that is out of our control. But what is the possibility of being free from is reactivity to what is happening. Kind of the stream of what's happening inside our experience and outside. There's a stream of experience. And we don't have much control over that, you know, that flow of you know, just pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience happening inside and outside. But we do have some say over how we respond to that. And so this is often the perspective we look at with, res- with looking at wisdom. And I will, I, I, I think what I'm going to do is, because as I was thinking about this talk tonight, I was thinking that um, the suffering that's most on my mind uh, in this week is not my own inner suffering, but the suffering of what happened in Orlando on Sunday. And so I would like to explore tonight, what does it mean to apply the wisdom that the Buddha offered to suffering on that magnitude. How do we we hold it? How do we understand it? What does the Buddha have to say about this? And so I'd like to explore this topic of wisdom probably in more than one session because tonight I'd like to look at what the teachings offer us at times, in times like this. So I think the first piece is the whole of the Buddhist teachings are exploring suffering. You know, this is suffering. This is a huge suffering in our, in our communities, in our uh, country right now, this this action that happened, uh, the the murder of 49 people in Orlando, it's a huge suffering, and it lands on us. It lands on us in different ways for different people, and so the first piece that the Buddha pointed to, I mean, he he pointed to. I mean, if we think about the the basic Thing that the Buddha pointed to around, you know, suffering arises out of greed, aversion, and delusion. It's like that was on full display in that event. The uh, the confusion of of the mind thinking that this somehow was a good idea. The aversion of that mind. And then all of the, uh, the responses after that following too. So much, so much following on from that pain and suffering of just the, the suffering of loss, the suffering of confusion, of sadness, the suffering of anger and hatred that comes in our own hearts when something like this happens. And so all of that the Buddha pointed to as a rising from greed, from aversion, from confusion, from confusion, from delusion. So, in suffering arising from this, uh, these patterns in our mind, you know, sometimes you know, the, the Buddha points to when greed, aversion, and delusion are arising, suffering will be present. Sometimes. If it's not being acted on, it's just internal. And we, it, we, we may or may not actually experience, directly experience that suffering because delusion may be so strong. There's so many ways that we believe. I mean, the actions of, of that young man. So, so much suffering must have been present in him in taking that action. And yet the, you know, it's chilling to look at his face taking a selfie, you know, it's it's chilling. And so we can only imagine how much delusion was present there. How much delusion was present to harden the heart to do that action to kill so many people. And so inwardly as greed aversion and delusion arise we may or may not feel it we may or may not feel the suffering of that but we can see we can we can recognize that if we act on greed aversion and delusion if we act out of that it is going to create suffering somewhere in the world and and again it may not be immediate in this case it's very immediate But when we act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, suffering follows. The very first verse of the the Dhammapada says something like this. All experiences made by mind, led by mind preceded by mind. Speak or act with the corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox." So suffering follows when we act from greed, aversion, and delusion. So this understanding, this is, this, this understanding of suffering comes out of greed, aversion, and delusion. Acting on suffering, acting on greed, aversion, and delusion has consequences that result in suffering both internally and externally. This is a key wisdom statement of the Buddha. It's the second noble truth suffering arises when greed, aversion, and delusion arise. in the Four Noble Truths, and the Four Noble Truths are one of the key wisdom expressions of the Buddha. He talked about the truth of suffering, the truth of how suffering arises, the truth of the possibility that suffering can end, and the truth that there is a way for suffering to come to an end. This first noble truth, the truth of suffering, the wisdom that the Buddha asks us to, to explore around that truth, he has an action for us it 's not just believe this, believe there is suffering, believe there is a cause of suffering it 's take action on this truth by understanding suffering, and what does that mean? I mean because it's not it 's not what we so habitually think it means when we uh, think of understanding something often we think it means figure out how, how something happened, why it happened, think about it, figure out what, what I did that contributed. We often go into our thoughts and rationalizing and figuring things out. But that understanding the Buddha was pointing us to was more about this inner exploration. What is it in our experience? How does it come to be in our direct experience? So get to know, understand suffering from the inside. Not by thinking about it, but by feeling into it. And so to me this is one of the first lessons the Buddha offers us at a time like this. This this, this happened. This shooting, this tragedy happened. And we... Have a response to it. Our first task is to open to that response. Be honest with ourselves about that response because it's going to be all over the map. My own experience has, has gone from rage and anger to sadness and fear and confusion. And it's, it's, it's so much. It's not a simple response often. But as we, as we feel into that, as we feel into what our own response is, we see, first of all, we begin to understand um, (coughs) that our own, our own experience is, well, that's not so simple, that our own experience is has, has complex threads to it. Our own experience, and we, if we look at it and are honest about it, we see we may begin to understand, not by thinking about it, but by uh, seeing these responses, these reactions. of Like for me, anger is such a fast one. It happens so quickly because that's the way my heart was conditioned for so many years and so we start to see we start to see just how our responses and reactions to something are conditioned we are created we are shaped we are shaped every one of us is shaped by our experience and this is another another big uh, teaching from the Buddha a wisdom teaching from the Buddha that he points to how we are shaped by conditions we're shaped by our families we're shaped by our cultures we're shaped by our communities we're shaped by our education we're shaped by our own experiences, we're shaped by our childhood friendships we're shaped by how we have lived in the world. So this shaping process, we are shaped, and we can begin to see this as we look into our own experience. We start to see, oh, how are we shaped? How are we shaped? And as we respond in the world, you know, we're not... We're not, that shaping from our families, from our culture, from the media, from um, education, you know, that shaping is done by, by, it's kind of like large forces shape us in some ways. And yet, all of those large forces come back to a bunch of individuals and we, as individuals, also take our part in shaping the culture. This back and forth. We are shaped and then as we respond to the world, we shape. We can see this more directly, perhaps, in our own shaping of our own relationships or the shaping of our uh, relationships with children or uh, friends and yet the you know our, what we put out into the world contributes to that whole of the culture the whole of the community the whole of the family so we see as we see this as we begin to look at our own experience And and acknowledge with some degree of understanding because we're looking at our own experience. We see that often these shaping forces... they drive us below the level of, usually below the level of our conscious awareness. And so the medicine, some of the medicine the Buddha offers is to begin to witness these shaping forces. And we witness these shaping forces in our own experience. As we witness them, we, we begin to have some say, you know, when we are, when we are shaped and we are not so aware of it we're likely to act just kind of habitually out of the ways that we were shaped we're likely to act habitually from patterns based in greed aversion and delusion and when we when we see that when we see that with mindfulness there's a way that the mindfulness can enter in and give us another option give us another choice And this, again, is some of the wisdom the Buddha offers us. That we don't have to be driven by those shaping forces. We don't have to be automatically responding in the way that we've been conditioned. So as we see this in our own hearts, as we see that kind of human nature it is to both shape and be shaped our minds understand that this is not just about us it's not just me that's being shaped and shaping it's everyone and and as we watch and see in our own minds the 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 ways that bits of greed and aversion kind of bubble up and you know spill out It can be very humbling. And if we are willing to actually see that, it takes a lot of courage to see that. I talked about this on Tuesday morning also and remembered something from early in my practice. There was a a time early in my practice when I was extremely angry at somebody. And uh, was exploring that anger. So that was, that was my practice, to really explore the anger. Uh, to notice it as it came up, to see what was there, what was going on. Not to repress it, but also to see if I could not act on it. But to feel it. This is, again, some of the wisdom that Buddha offers us around, around our um, difficult mind states. And so as I was exploring that, at one point I, I saw and felt this anger erupt at this person in my mind. And along with that came this wish that that person feel pain. That the person that I was angry with, that they deserved to be really miserable. And they deserved to, to, to have pain. That, seeing that, that was very painful to see that, to feel that, to feel just how much I wanted somebody else to suffer. This is the way aversion and fear and anger and hatred function in our minds. It creates that condition for us to want to hurt others. Now most of us you know, have a level or a barrier That I know that I wouldn't have done that or or done something to create harm. But to see it in my own heart was so humbling. And to see, in that moment, it was like it was a revelation. In that moment, I also recognized, wow, this isn't just this heart. This is seven billion hearts in the world that do this. No wonder there's so much suffering in the world. Of course there are times and conditions when that impulse erupts. Very humbling to feel that, not to repress it, not to deny it. When we see it, when we see that impulse and can feel into the pain of that, that helps us to understand both both and... uh, both to understand that movement in our own hearts and to have compassion for others in their situations and in their struggles. And so we see it's not so simple. There's a lot of complexity in our own minds I think with a, a an event like this, at least my, my mind, again, you know, this, I was watching my mind this week and it's like, gun control! You know, that's, that was like, let's solve this problem. You know, gun control is going to solve this problem. And so that's where my mind collapsed to and it's like, a very few moments of reflection was like, you know, if that assault weapon hadn't been easily purchased, some other thing would have been possible. You know, it's not, there's no one answer to the action that was taken. There's no one thing that's going to say, yes, we can do this and it will never happen again. There's so much complexity in our world, so much complexity in our minds... That one, you know, one, one narrow thing, you know, let's, let's ban the Muslims, let's um, ban the assault weapons. It's like, it's not, it's not, that's not going to stop greed, aversion, and delusion. In some ways, it's very simple. And Buddha pointed to, he was brilliant in pointing to these aspects of our mind being the source from which all the rest of the mess springs. And so that's, that's our work inwardly. And, and don't underestimate the power of that possibility. There's a, another saying from the Dhammapada hatred never ceases through hatred. Through non-hatred alone does hatred end. And so that teaching, that wisdom teaching, also points us to, in a time like this, it's so easy to um, have hatred and anger be a motivating factor for how we respond. And so it's a caution for us. It's like that hatred piled on hatred is not the way. Now it's not it's not that we don't act. This is this is something we I think we need to kind of recognize it's we're so used to being motivated by greed aversion and delusion that it's hard to imagine why we might act if we were not motivated by greed aversion and delusion. It's like why would I do anything if I was equanimous? Why would I do anything if if I, you know, felt things as they are. This is what's, what's here. So why would I do anything? And so it's hard for our minds from the perspective of kind of being caught in greed, aversion, and delusion to fathom what it m- might mean to act from non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. What does it mean to act from non-hatred? The qualities of heart that arrive with non-hatred with non-greed, with non-delusion, are love, compassion, wisdom. And these factors, and equanimity, and these factors in the mind are not factors that just lead us to sit there and just watch the world go by. They actually inspire us to act in the world. And yet we have to sit with ourselves for long enough to be able to touch into all of the complexity of what's going on here. To, to begin to see that, you no, know, even underneath all of the anger and all of the hatred and all of the confusion and all of the sadness and all of the grief and all the longing and all of the threads that we have in there. Underneath that, underneath all of it, for most of us, is this wish that this kind of thing not happen, right? I mean, that's there. I wish human beings didn't harm human beings. It's a deep wish that we have. And that is a wholesome wish. That is the wish of metta. That is the wish of kindness and compassion. And it's overlaid by reactivity. It's overlaid by anger because it's so painful when that wish is not what is met in reality. Like We we meet the truth of the way people behave with each other and it is so painful that that wish that I wish human beings did not do this to each other. That, that that wish is it's kind of squashed in a way because in some ways we feel like if this is reality then that wish is invalid we may feel that if this is reality if people m- mow down people with an assault weapon if that's the reality then this wish for people not to do that is invalid we may, we may think that it's like that's not the way it is, so I can't wish that. And so that, that wish, that meta-wish gets buried under anger and hatred and confusion. And so if we can come into our experience and begin to touch into all of those feelings, underneath all of those feelings, it's a, there's like a thread to that, to that wish that we not hurt each other. And when we can touch into that, there may be a place for action from that. Maybe there's a place where we can step forward and do something. So in some ways there's this great complexity of all the different ways people are conditioned. And yet the Buddha pointed to these very simple kind of functions in the mind around greed, aversion, and delusion and said, start paying attention to those. And by the way, behave ethically. And so, you know, again, the the confusion that leads a mind to do something like this to behave unethically for some of us it's almost inconceivable that that happens and yet again you know we don't know the conditioning that that being went through you know it's 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 like we I may feel like, you know, oh, given my upbringing here, you know, what I've lived through in my life, uh, you know, I would never have participated in Nazi Germany, for instance. But it's very hard to know. Given the shaping conditions that were happening there, how our minds would have been shaped. Again, we are shaped by our cultures and our communities and our, the politics and the, we're shaped by that. And so it's, it's very hard to know how we would be. If I had lived that young man's life, I don't know how I would be. And that's very, that's a painful recognition. It is a painful recognition to feel that. And so again, you know, the Buddha pointed to these these shaping forces. You know, greed, aversion, delusion are contagious in our our, uh, societies, in our cultures, in our media. And that's a lot of what's out there. That's a lot of what's shaping us. And yet, in places like this, there's also the possibility to begin to recognize that compassion is also contagious and love and wisdom are also contagious. That we can choose when we are able to see our own reactivity and own uh, responses not repressing them but what I've seen happen is I open to them with truth, with, with honesty, as I open to my own humbling conditioning and the forces that it generates in my mind, I'm much more willing to uh, not act out of that conditioning. As it can be seen, there's more of a choice. There's more of the option to act from compassion and wisdom and love. And so how are we shaping the world? How do we shape the world in response to a tragedy like this? What do we contribute what do we contribute? You know, there's so much, often there's just this quick wanting to jump on some cause or other. Um, and maybe what's needed first is to stand together with this suffering. You know, we, we, we look at it in, internally in our own hearts, and then we meet our communities and meet the suffering there. Not to, to try to come to a quick fix But to honor the pain. This first noble truth to me is really about honoring our suffering. Honoring it in understanding it. And so that may be one of the most healing things we can do right now is stand with each other in this pain. And not run from it. And not try to jump to something because it's so hard to feel that pain that we want to go to anger and go to, well, we should do this and this and this. But maybe the best thing we can do right now understand, stand with the suffering. Stand together in that. This is what the Buddha, one of the, medi- one of the medicines the Buddha suggested around suffering. When it's a community that's suffering, maybe the community can stand together to witness it, to feel it, to understand it in this different way. I want to leave some time for any comments or, or thoughts that you have about this. If there's anything, yeah. So I guess it's having the wisdom to renounce hatred. the wisdom to renounce hatred then renouncing there doesn't mean repressing it means choosing to not act on the hatred and that's a that's a paradox for us it's kind of a fine line to walk that place of yeah i'm really angry and 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 to not repress that but but to open to that and actually allow that to kind of drop us into the, the humanness of that. Not just the individuality of that, but the humanness of that. And, and as we renounce acting on that, maybe we can touch into the compassion underneath too. And act from that. Yeah, thank you. you spoke a lot about conditioning and our um, backgrounds and training and exposure from whatever sources but I am wondering about what your understanding is of innate evil impulses and the conditions that of personality that people are born with, that are um, hostile or evil, and how and what the understanding is in terms of past lives and yeah. our Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. so there's, birth. there's a couple pieces here that uh, I would kind of point to. and one is that there's certain minds. I think certain physical damage in the brain that can create a mind that does not have an empathetic relationship in the world. So there's some of that, some of that is, is a physical manifestation. It's, it's, you know, that's how that brain was put together. That's, that's the rare, that's the rarer thing. You know, that's, I think not, for most of us, there is, um, those, those, um, impulses towards greed, aversion, and delusion, or evil are, um, uh, underneath there is this kind of possibility of empathy, um, so I just want to point to that, that there are some, some minds, I think, in a particular, I mean, if you believe in multiple lives, uh, in this life, you know, in this life, that, that mind just doesn't have that capacity. I think that, that is, that is understood from some, uh, neurological, um, uh, mechanisms. In terms of the, um, the shaping, the Buddhist understanding is that they're shaping from many lives, and uh, that yes, that uh, that our conditioning from previous lives can come into this. And so, the the understanding of a kind of a you know personalities at birth, <laughs> you know, different proclivities that children have, they're understood to be shaped from. From previous lives, um, so that too can come into play. That you know, the the um, conditioning of all of all of our previous experience comes into play to shape our uh, our habits, basically. Um, and yet, you know, in in the time of the Buddha, actually, somebody just brought up this question (laughs) about Angulimala Uh, in the time of the Buddha there was uh, there was a mass murderer um, who apparently murdered 999 people and so he had a strong proclivity towards hatred, hostility in his mind He, he acted on it over and over and over and over again um, and it's uh, it 's said that you know he was motivated to do that by um, kind of being um, uh, told to by a teacher, not a buddhist teacher but 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 a teacher of his said you know this is what you have to do in order to fulfill my training. You have to kill 999 people. And so he went out and did that. And you know, you you can just imagine that that action and it said that he even was ready to kill his own mother to finish this this job. Um and so, you know, this this action in his mind. Now this you know, Perhaps, perhaps conditioned from previous lives, perhaps conditioned from this life. But in any case, uh, that strong pattern of conditioning, and this is one thing I think that part of the reason maybe this teaching is in that sutta, is that it points to the possibility of redemption for pretty much anybody. And in this case, the Buddha met Angulimala and had a very powerful effect on him and in that moment, Angulimala renounced and stopped the murdering, and started to watch his mind, started to look at what was going on, and so the possibility—I mean, as, as I said, you know—in a, in a certain mind that doesn't have that capacity for empathy, um, you know, my, my understanding—it's just like I envision what happened to Angulimala when he started to meditate. You know, he sat down and started to meditate. And, you know, I know from my own experience when I've done something that created harm in the world, that comes into meditation in a very strong way. You know, it's like, he must have spent a lot of hours in his meditation feeling the pain of what he had done. And so that's, that's what it takes to begin to turn the mind that's kind of habituated towards evil to the mind that begins to renounce evil. It's to feel the suffering of what that uh, evil has created. And, you know, it's, it's not always possible for some minds to do that. You know, it's, it's like, you know, the, the Buddha pointed to ethics strongly pointed to ethics as a way to engage in the world. And you know, we can't, we, we can't take that lightly. And actually appreciating our own ethics, even in, this, even in the way of saying, you know, I commit to not killing another human being. If everyone on the planet did that in this instant, it would be a completely different world and so there you know there is a there's a possibility I mean it's possible that seven and a half billion people could decide to do that in an instant it's not very likely and so we are left with this there is evil in the world and so the, you know where does it come from? It comes from greed, aversion, and delusion. The, the Buddhist cosmology says it's been going on for eons and eons. This greed, aversion, and delusion has been propelling itself forward. And so the, the basic answer to the question of where does evil come from? It's born out of delusion. It's born out of delusion and ignorance and different depths of that in our, in our minds, it's possible for some of us to see that delusion in this life and begin to feel the pain of what we've done and to turn our experience to more ethical conduct and more uh, purification, that renunciation, that cultivating of the beautiful qualities. So I've kind of just talked around your question. But yeah, yeah why don't we just take a moment of silence here to just sit together and how are you right now as we've been talking about this it may have created something in your heart can that can you let that be there? Open to it and maybe see the connection to the wish for happiness and well being for all, even if it's confusion or anger or frustration. There's a thread. Sometimes we can just remind ourselves of that. Connecting, standing together to meet how we all are in this moment.